This evening we are on this theme of uh, continuing this theme of Mythbusters, and the tonight's title is Christians Don't Get Depressed. Uh, And you can probably kind of guess where I'm going to land in that because it's a mythbuster, that probably means at some point I'm going to unpack it to say yes, they do. But go with me, just an act surprised in about three slides' time. Um, So um, I thought maybe we would start with some pictures of what Christians are supposed to look like. Uh, You know, these are the kind of pictures that we think of Christians. You know, happy children running around. There is is hope and anticipation of all the things that life is going to hold. And then, of course, there's the perfect young couple who have just got together and they haven't had sex and they're going to get married and their parents are all together and everything is amazing and they are just gorgeous and we hate them. Um, uh, And then, of course, you know, there's, uh, there's the gorgeous woman in her mid-30s, and, and she's got everything. She's managing to hold down a career and has had seven children, and there's no wrinkles in sight. And then, of course, you come into those kind of slightly more senior moments, and uh, life, frankly, is brilliant because your retirement plan has paid out, so you could, you could stop at 50, and everything is just, you know, you're on a holiday just all the time. And life is good. The only problem with all of these photographs is that, well, the folks in them might be Christians, but all of the photographs are from dentistry adverts. Every single person in those last four or five photographs, including this lovely lady who's actually on the couch at that point, having, waiting happily to have her teeth drilled. <laughs> uh, you know, no one looks like that when they go to the dentist, do they? Um, you know, but somehow there is this myth about, den- you know, once you had your teeth done, everything is going to be amazing. And sometimes it can be like that too with us Christians. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. There's a reality of what life is like. In this world you'll have trouble. Scott Peck began his uh, book uh, with those famous three words, life is difficult. And folks, we, we don't live in this dentistry world of polished teeth. We live in this now and not yet of the kingdom of God. We know what we hope for. We know that there is a place coming that will be pain-free. There will be no more death, no more dying. But we're not there yet. We are living in this world and there is pain and there is hardship and there is illness and people die too young and we've heard it on the national news this week and we've heard it locally as well and life is hard it's tough and we don't do ourselves or anyone else any favors by putting a gloss on it 
I'm really, really grateful um, that most of the heavyweight content of this talk uh, is actually not from me. It's from someone that was hoping to be with us tonight, but actually he's, he's got to be in Kent to look after uh, some clients up at, or a client up in Kent. Um, so I was really grateful for it. Let's give him his proper title, Dr. Peter Tucker. Uh, who's usually, you know, hiding off in the band somewhere. Um, but actually, he's a, he's a professional clinical psychologist. And so he's... The, the, the stuff that looks like, it knows, like I know what I'm talking about, I don't. That's his stuff. Okay? Just so we're really clear. All right? And I'm really, really grateful for his input uh, to help shape some of this. Life is hard. Life is difficult. There will be trouble. And actually, the Bible is really clear that that's the case. If you look at Hannah weeping, desperate for life to be different. If you look at Elijah hiding out in the cave, he's just done these amazing things for God. And he runs off. Am I the only one left? Suddenly, his world has got smaller and he's just hiding out in a cave, down and depressed. And we look at the book of Job, just full of the agonies and the hardship and the pain of life. And a man wrestling with having been robbed of the good things that he had. And David, my soul, why are you so downcast? And repeatedly in the Psalms, that reality of how he's feeling, the human condition. Even Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, being anguished the night before his trial. Anguished to the point of, of shedding blood through his skin. And Paul with this thorn in the flesh, this suffering that he undergoes. So let's look at some of Pete's slides and see if we can get a little bit of perspective on some of this stuff. Um, his have got a few more words on them than mine. <laughs> I'm not expecting you to be able to read all of them. Um, the first thing is this, is that there is a very specific diagnosis for what depression looks like. It's not just a, a kind of fuzzy feeling, you know, when it starts out uh, at the foothills, it might be that it's, you know, some, a, a word that we can bat around and use it lightly, but actually it is something of real substance. And what Pete said is that there were these five uh, symptoms and that for there to be a, a diagnosis of a major uh, depression, that all five of these symptoms need to be in play. And many of those things you will know, that, that sense of hopelessness, loss of pleasure, insomnia, loss of energy, feeling of worthlessness or guilt, inability to concentrate, thoughts of death or suicide. You know, this is a very real thing. It's not some kind of abstract thing that happens to other people. The stats uh, put it 
like this. Let me highlight just two of them for you. That depression amongst the 18 pluses in the Baines area is currently about 9%. That means that there are about 17,000 people over the age of 18 who are experiencing depression in this area. If you put depression and anxiety together, it's about 12%. That's 23,000 people. That's people here tonight. It's your neighbors. It's people in your household, and it might even be you. Pete's highlighted uh, three models for us. Firstly, a psychological model. This is the the framework for which someone like uh, Peter would diagnose someone. Presence of, neg- uh, presence of negative life events. And there's an impact for folks, and it's very, very real. So on one hand, there's a psychological model, but on the other hand, there's a biological model. And actually what this is saying is that the neurotransmitters, those chemicals that pass messages on inside our brain, that something is actually physically happening. This is not just a feeling. Something physical is going on. And that there's genetics involved and the environment and the reaction is physical, a depressive physical reaction. A couple of other slides from Pete. The first is this, that sometimes sometimes depression is not what we make it out to be as church. It's not a character defect. It's often not a spiritual disorder. In fact, probably quite a lot of the time. It's not a choice. We can't make this better by people trying harder to make it better. If this is where someone is at, they're not simply just going to get over it. And those sometimes historic ways of talking, if only you had enough faith, you wouldn't be feeling like this. Come on, gee up, stiff up a lip. It's going to be all right. You know, all those things do, all that language does. Actually, it denies people the proper help that they need. Yes, we need to love people. Yes, we need to walk with them. But actually, also, sometimes what people need is just a professional to walk alongside them, whether that's talking or whether that's medication or whatever it might be. And there is this reality that the spiritual and the psychological and the biological, that actually we cannot speak with certainty about where some of those begin and end. But the science is clear that these things are real. You know, mental illness is not a sin. Sometimes the things that we will stumble into as a result of that, well, yeah, they might be sin. 
but actually to suffer in this way from depression or from anxiety, it's not sinful. It's just the reality of how things are. And if we treat this purely as sin and try and solve it with confession or just with prayer ministry, we're not going to get very far. In fact, we'll probably bury it deeper and deeper. What I'd love to do is just to share with you a little bit of my story, if I may. Um, I thought an amusing picture in the background might help. Uh, this is me at an ordination in Exeter. Uh, before, quite a long time before the story I'm about to tell you. So we're all just about to dress up in our fancy robes. And this is me and another vicar from Plymouth. And he had brought wigs along with him because uh, he thought it would be funny. So this is us in the cloisters of Exeter Cathedral having an absolute riot trying not to be seen by the bishop. Uh, So let me tell you the story, and I'm going to tell you the story. I'll give you some timelines, because I think sometimes that's helpful, but I'm not going to give you uh, many specific dates. Um, some time ago, we had moved, not here, by the way, just, just to clarify that, so we're clear. Um, although, actually, if, it, if that was the case, then I would want to talk about that, but maybe this, is not, maybe this would not be the platform. Uh, some time ago in a faraway land, but one that was absolutely real, we had moved into a new place with full of hope and anticipation for all of the good things that we were going to walk into and experience in that place. I've been ordained for a little while, I've been doing the vicar thing for a little while, And um, it was the kind of place where I walked in, and, and as the van was being unpacked, I knew that something was wrong. It took me 12 weeks of trying to hold it together before I crashed and fell off the end of the pier. And I remember exactly where I was. It wasn't a good place for me. I was in a Good Friday service, dressed in black in a quite traditional church, helping to lead a three-hour meditation on the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And right in the middle of it, I just... And my internal world fell apart. You know, I'm quite good at keeping it together. So I, 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 I kept on functioning. And the place where I was, actually the person who was my boss was non-functional and depressed. So I, as his assistant, had to be quite high-functioning and to pretend not to be depressed, uh, having just crashed. Because he had handed most of it over to me. And so I'm keeping the whole thing together 
for the sake of others, for the sake of those in leadership above me, for the sake of the church who uh, most of them didn't have a clue what was going on. At first, it was just that sense of having to drag myself out of bed every single day to go and do the things that God was calling me to do. The shorthand would be, uh, but it's too easy, an extended period of joylessness. I kept going for my family. I didn't talk about it much. I kept going even though whenever I got on the M25, I had recurrent thoughts about what would happen if I drove the car into the central reservation. And then after about 18 months of trying to hold it together, Meg and I had this turning point conversation where I just had a meltdown on the sofa. And she was so gracious with me. And I'm so grateful that she didn't completely freak out. Although the cost for her on the other side of the pillar was, cost, was huge. From that moment on, we started to try and talk about it and confided in a number of friends locally and just tried to be more honest about how things were going, but all the time keeping on going because actually it wasn't an option to stop. And I, I checked in with a clinical psychologist like Pete, um, except this guy was a little bit older, and this is where there is a little bit of lightness in the story, you'll be glad to know. Uh, so I go and see this guy, and I have to drive 45 minutes uh, to go and see him. And, uh, you know, normal kind of setup for an independent practitioner. And he has kind of got this, this shed in his garden. Um, and so we go and sit in there, and it's a bit smelly, and it's a bit cold. Uh, and I'm talking away and telling him all of my kind of life story and recounting what's going on. And, you know, and, and I, you, know, you have to know how I approach these things as well. So I walk in and I say, uh, right, I would really like to get this done quickly, so I'm going to tell you what the problem is, and if you could then tell me what the answer is, I will then go and do it, and then we'll be problem solved. He was like, mm, yes, Mark. Tell me about, I don't know. <sighs> Sorry. So I do talk to him. The only problem is, is as I'm getting to all the interesting bits, every single time he falls asleep. To the point, I mean consistently, I mean he would sometimes do it three or four times in a session. I would be talking about the really interesting bits and he would just nod off. And I'd be like, <clears throat> and, and it was fine. So we, so we had this little kind of game going on. I went and saw him every couple of weeks um, for a whole load of sessions. And then we came to, uh, we came to the one before the end and, and he's fallen asleep again. But this time, I kind of I just left him, <laughs> and I'm talking away about the stuff, about how awful it is, and the, and the M25 crash barrier, and you know, trying to sustain stuff, and uh, how all that work, uh, uh, and he just 
he comes out of his sleep and he says this one sentence. And I'm like, that's it. <laughs> and for me, that unlocked everything. I, I, I don't mean a simple, easy unlocking. What I mean is it, is it I turn the corner. He said one thing and I turned the corner. So for me, there had been a bunch of things that I had held on to that weren't mine to hold on to. It was another 18 months before I even began to feel remotely like myself again. And it was another 18 months after that. And I, I remember the day really clearly. Because it was a day where, for the first time in, in a number of years, where I felt spontaneous joy. thing when you've been through something like that is it's not something you get over. You live with and you journey on and you hopefully as I try and do and I know many of you do as well you try and grow in personal awareness so that it doesn't happen again. And you talk more. And sometimes you get close. But you watch out for yourself, for others. What I didn't know, and the sad bit of the story is, there was a reason why the psychologist was falling asleep. He had a brain tumor and he died six months later. So, you know, I don't hold him. I'm, I'm hugely grateful. That even in his sleep, he was so brilliant that he could just <laughs> say the stuff that I needed to hear and give me the time. Let's talk about a couple of things just as we close and then we're going to worship together. Um, a personal response. You know, one of the things that I learned during that time was a, a kind of ruthless approach to the spiritual discipline of thanksgiving. You know, I have a, often have two alarms set now. And I stay in bed until the second one. And that first five minutes is spent the same way almost every morning. Just giving thanks. Because I know that otherwise I won't get through the day. And you know, those Christian spiritual disciplines are hugely important they're important for us all to learn and to practice, but there is a boundary line. There is a boundary line between being resilient, growing in resilience, learning how to care for yourself well, and actually getting to the point where you're not caring for yourself well and what you need is not spiritual discipline. You just need the help of someone else to walk with you. Whether that's someone to talk to, whether it's a friend, whether it's a professional, whether it's medical help, whatever it might be, but there is a boundary line. And my encouragement to every single one of you 
is yes, grow in those things that help us to, to be strong. But also watch for those boundary lines, those crossing points. Be attentive to them. Attentive to them. Because actually asking for help from another human being or from a professional is not a sin. It's a good thing to do. And it might be that in that there is the root into a season of life that is more peaceful. Very recently, Justin Welby did a thought for the day and on depression, because of course they've been holding a conference recently up at Lambeth Palace. And in it, he said this, this is the Archbishop of Canterbury. Last year, I realized I was depressed. My daughter helped me see that it was nothing to be ashamed. And I should have put the word of in there. And I got help. This is Justin Welby, acknowledging that he struggles. So folks, if that's you, please don't struggle alone. Even if it's tonight, you just reach out a hand to someone and say, that's me. Or I could do with some help, whatever it might be. And a community response. What might it be like for us to be a community where this kind of thing is not hidden away? I think it simply means that we talk about it in appropriate ways. And that we talk about it more. That we don't settle for those answers where we, where we say to one another, how are you? And the response is, fine. It's the dentist approach. We don't settle for that. Next time someone asks you, pause before you give the answer. Maybe it's to acknowledge that the pain of being human is part of the journey. And that to hide it makes it worse. The choice to stand with people. Knowing that we don't have a fix. That we can't necessarily make things right for them. Or for ourselves but that we can stand with people. Because churches, at least, should be places where none of us are alone. And we need to acknowledge that actually we have all sorts of good care that we can offer as a Christian community. But actually... Some of those professional skills are best served by those outside. In a minute, I'm going to read Psalm 23. And then I'd love us just to worship together if we can. And as we worship, it might be that you're praying for someone that you know. It might be that you're praying that you're crying out in your heart as we worship. And as we worship together, there will be uh, members of the prayer ministry team. Thank you, guys. There will be members of the prayer ministry team at the back here. 
under the balcony just while we're worshipping. They'll probably be at the front at the end. But if you'd love them to pray with you, then just head to the back and they'd, they'd love just to, just to cover you in God's goodness and love, not as a quick fix, but so you know that you're not alone. So I'm going to Will you stand with me? I'm going to read Psalm 23 as a prayer. And then we worship together. And Lord, just before I read this, I pray for those that I've mentioned as I've spoken about some personal things this evening. I pray for your blessing upon those communities, those individuals that you know the names of. And Lord, thank you that you are here and that you are gracious. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, as we often do, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever Lord for those places where we resonate with that psalm we give you thanks for those places where we long for it to be like that Lord, come and lead us. Help us to know that you are with us and alongside us right now. Lord, that you are with us in the joy and you are with us in the pain. You are with us when we are at our most creative and when we feel like we've got nothing to contribute. 
Lord, you're with us when we love going to the party. And you're with us when we just want to hide at home. Lord, help us to know that you are with us and come and minister to us now. Help us to worship. In Jesus' mighty name.